Hi, I'm Mackenzie from Paris, Wisconsin, a student pharmacist from the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Hi, I'm Courtney from Las Cruces, New Mexico, and I'm a student pharmacist from the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. episode, we talk with Dr. Carol Ott, clinical professor of pharmacy practice at Purdue University College of Pharmacy and clinical pharmacy specialist in psychiatry in Indianapolis, Indiana. Fleming, and joining me is my co-host, Alex Mills. We're from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy, and welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. In our previous two episodes of Pharmacy Forward, we have discussed the landscape of the opioid epidemic and issues related to opioid safety. Our topic today is stigma related to opioid use and how it creates unique problems in the day-to-day care of our patients. And our guest today is Dr. Carol Ott, who is a clinical professor at Purdue University, where her main responsibilities include serving as an expert panelist for the Opioid Project ECHO with Indiana University and the State Medicaid Board. She also serves as a consultant to the Public Defender's Office. We are honored to be able to speak with her today about her role in addressing the stigma related to opioid use and how this relates to pharmacy practice. Hi, Alex and Lori. Thanks very much for having me today. I really look forward to talking about the stigma associated with opioid use disorder. Great. So, Carol, I'm excited to hear your perspective as a practicing psychiatric clinical pharmacist as I've witnessed the effects of opioid use disorder in both my personal life and clinical practice. As a former PGY1 that practiced in a community pharmacy, I all too frequently observe stigma's effects on my patients receiving care, both from staff members and even fellow pharmacy colleagues. The first memory that comes to mind is overhearing staff members grumbling about a patient's possible addiction when partially filling a patient's Suboxone prescription. I also experienced hesitancy from pharmacists during a presentation when I asked them about dispensing naloxone, with several expressing concerns that they don't want to fuel an addict's behavior, almost suggesting that the naloxone is a tool that allows someone who overdoses to use with no consequences. Coming from personal experience, I have a close family member who is battling substance use disorder. I witnessed how this negatively affected him both legally and holding a job, but the negative effects seem to go way beyond that. Family members are routinely stressed to the max, and discussing his struggles with others is practically taboo, which probably prevents him from even wanting to receive care. So, Carol, as exhausting and challenging as these experiences have been, surely this is not an uncommon story for many others. No, I think it really is not an uncommon story, both from the perspective of people with substance use disorders experiencing the healthcare system, as well as how they interact with their own family and and friends. And so, you know, when we think about the family and friends, it's that's the support system for the person. And when you have a situation, which, as I said, is not uncommon, where the family does not accept what's happening with the person or is not supportive of a situation or trying to help them get help or figure out how to support them, it's very challenging. And often the person ends up spending the most time with the people that are hurting them the most, that being the people that they may use the substances with or obtain the substances from. 
Um, and so it's, it becomes difficult for them to leave that situation because those people um, become the support system because it's the non-judgmental place for the person that's using substances. And so we really need to work with the community to help people understand how, how they may be contributing to the problems that the person is having because they're unwilling to try and understand and support. Um, when we think about the healthcare system, and specifically you mentioned some community pharmacy situations, I think of that as twofold. One, the community pharmacist has become, in our current society, kind of the controlled substance police. And so not only does the pharmacist fill the prescriptions, but feels as though they have a role in evaluating whether the person should have them or not, whether they're abusing them or not, and potentially using their own assumptions or their own biases about that. So, you know, how do we help them understand what substance use disorder is, that that we have a disease going on here, that that we have to be the healthcare professional um, as opposed to the kind of monitor person for somebody's controlled substance use. You know, we teach medication-assisted treatment, but do we teach it in such a way that we're not just solely talking about pharmacology and disease management, are we also trying to weave into that what happens in a substance use disorder treatment? The psychiatry world is coming to the conclusion after long years of trying to silo mental health disorders and substance use disorders into separate buckets that this is a dual diagnosis, that we have a substantial number of people who use substances who also have a mental health disorder. Yes, Carol, and as you and Alex had described, this stigma surrounding opioid use disorder is not uncommon, and it's something that we as pharmacists don't need to just ignore. I've read a bit about the Boilerworks Project, which involves a multidisciplinary approach to addressing the opioid crisis in Indiana. Can you tell me more about this project and the role that you have within this team? So um, I appreciate you bringing up Boiler Works. Obviously, the boiler part comes from the Purdue Boilermakers, and the Works is RX at the end. And it is a public health initiative that is intended to be mobile in its mission. And it, it is sponsored by the College of Pharmacy. We were fortunate to have the Cheney Family Foundation provide us with some seed funding. And it was kind of a grassroots idea coming from the dean of the College of Pharmacy at Purdue University, Eric Barker. And so we spent last year putting it together and had our first event in April at our Lafayette Transitional Housing, which is where um, our homeless center is. And then also they work with housing for, for people in crisis in the community who need help. And so the mission of Boilerworks is really responding to crisis, promoting safe and healthy communities. Really, our goal is to get out into the community, get to the people who, who need, our, need our help, need our support, um, not just community members, but community health workers and, and others. And so um, we'd like to provide naloxone training and distribution. We're partnering with the health department here in Tippecanoe County. We hope to partner with other health departments throughout the state and use what we call Purdue Extension um, because we are the land-grant university in Indiana to get into all 92 counties to be able to do this. We provide drug disposal kits. And so we're using the doTERRA bags this is a way that people can get into their own medicine cabinets and, and pour their pills into this bag, add water, seal it up, um, and it's able to be discarded in an environmentally safe way. We want to advocate for harm reduction, and that means in most communities, safe injection practices. So this would be needle exchange or syringe services programs. I think we find a lot of people have misinformation or their own kind of bias 
related to syringe services programs, that they simply are giving people needles to use and that it is aiding and abetting people to use and don't really understand we have 30 years of an evidence base that supports this and that the whole goal of a of a syringe services program is to prevent the spread of infectious diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. And so the syringe services program provides not only the, the syringes themselves, but all of the tools needed to inject that could be a source of infection. So the water itself um, also provides alcohol pads, the cookers, little balls of cotton to draw through so that there isn't any contamination there. The tourniquets that people use, we provide wound care through our syringe services program. And then we also, because methamphetamine and cocaine are making a comeback for us, are providing pipe covers and straws. Um, And so we want to advocate for the health-related aspects of syringe services um, that we also can get to a face-to-face interaction with a person. And it may be the 50th time we talk to them, but they may actually be getting into treatment. We want to talk about wellness education help people navigate insurance enrollment options. We want to address stigmatizing language, um, which I know is something that we're going to get to and talk about a little bit later. But this is very dehumanizing for people and how can we work on changing the language that we use. Even as healthcare professionals, we often don't mean to say some of the things that we say. Sometimes they're kind of bred into us through our training. But how can we fix that so that we can reduce those barriers to care? Great. So let's talk a little bit more about the stigma around opioid disorders and how that may impact a a patient's care and proper treatment. So, Carol, what are some of the challenges and barriers that may impact their care? Well, I think first, um, when when we say things like this person is an addict or a user or a junkie, that really dehumanizes the person, especially druggy, um, junkie, user, abuser, that kind of thing. Addict is a term that is so ingrained in us kind of throughout society and as healthcare professionals that, you know, we call these disorders addictions and how do we get ourselves away from even using that term and talking about substance use disorder instead. So in the state of Indiana, um, I actually would give Governor Holcomb some credit. Um, I, at in.gov, there is a website called Know the O Facts, and it has a tab on it that really talks about stigmatizing language and what, what we say and what we don't and how it creates a barrier. Because you can imagine, we never know who is around us, what we could be saying that could be potentially either offensive to somebody or um, could be something that would tell a person around us that maybe we're not so accepting of them. Maybe we won't, even though we're healthcare professionals, we might not be so helpful to them because just simply because of the language that we use. So instead of saying drug habit, saying disease, instead of saying ex-addict, saying a person living in recovery, um, instead of calling somebody a drug offender, calling them a person arrested for a drug violation, instead of saying somebody's hooked on drugs, saying somebody's substance dependent, instead of the idea that medication is a crutch, saying medication is a treatment tool, saying somebody relapsed, which is a really common thing to say. I mean, we even talk about when we do continuing educations related to medication-assisted treatment, we tell people that, you know, we expect relapse when somebody is in a substance use disorder treatment program because it's hard. Um, But can we say how to set back? So it's even training ourselves, saying somebody stayed clean, just the idea of being clean infers that if you are not substance-free, you're dirty. 
And so saying person's maintaining recovery is substance-free, saying they have a negative drug instead of a clean drug screen, saying they have a positive drug screen instead of a dirty drug screen. And so it's really thinking about how we use language and language really important. Carol, I'm so glad that you brought up this issue and the effects of stigmatizing language that we've all used at some point. Ultimately, what should we as pharmacists, what should we do? What is our call to action? So I think it is both personal and professional. So I think all of us, just as human beings, need to take a good long look in the mirror and say, "How? what do I think about this? And why do I think it? And are there things that I believe that perhaps I am, I have misinformation or I have a lot of bias associated with that? And I mean, not just opioid use disorders, but I think in general, when we think about stigma and how, how we treat people around us. And so from a personal perspective, I think that's something that is really important for all of us to do. As healthcare professionals, there are things that we can do to be involved volunteering at a syringe services program, try and talk to them about getting into treatment. So just volunteering from that aspect. Get trained in naloxone. Know what your state has available. In Indiana, we have naloxone available to anybody under a standing order from our state health commissioner. Surgeon General in April of 2018 came out with an advisory and said everybody and his brother needs to be carrying naloxone. Whether you think you know somebody or not, you could pass somebody on the street. You could find somebody in a bathroom, which a public bathroom, by the way, is one of the most common places where people are found to have overdosed. And so knowing how to get naloxone, what's available in your state, there are recovery networks that are around um, local communities, Um, National Alliance for Mental Illness or Mental Health America. Those are local type organizations that you can get involved with and you know, really trying to figure out what's going on in your community, what you can be a part of. Maybe you go advocate to policymakers in your community. And oftentimes the healthcare professionals in the room, if they've really thought about it and really looked at the evidence base, can be the ones to go into those types of meetings to really talk about what that evidence is and combat misinformation and stigma. Great. So I really enjoy, Carol, that you're talking about there for us. It's kind of the personal and professional paradigms that we kind of essentially need to practice what we preach, right? So I think that's brought up some great points. And you've talked about some of the resources already, and you've given our listeners excellent places to start in combating stigma-related opioids. Uh, Are there any other sources that you would recommend when we're looking for an evidence-based resource related to addressing this topic, both in practice and in day-to-day life? Well, I think the first place um, to start, the American Society of Addiction Medicine has treatment guidelines available that were published, I believe, in fall of 2015. And they do have one of their publications that's a really short highlights of their longer treatment guidelines that are really focused on medication-assisted treatment. And um, it's about a five-pager that talks about methadone, talks about naltrexone, and it, it also talks about buprenorphine and the fact that for the American Society of Addiction Medicine or ASAM, all of these medications are first-line treatment. There isn't kind of a, there isn't a step that we go through in terms of choosing which medication is best for a patient. It's really based on what does this person have? What are they capable of doing? Do they have a car? Can they get to a methadone clinic? Is there a data 2000 prescriber available for buprenorphine? 
it also brings out the differences between buprenorphine and methadone as at least partial or full agonists at the mu opioid receptor versus naltrexone, which is an absolute antagonist. We've had treatment failures, people going straight to naltrexone long-acting injections sometimes because they're not ready for that abstinence. And so the ASAM guidelines do help providers understand, pharmacists understand that all of these medications are first-line treatment. There are a few other things that people can do. One is the College of Psychiatric and Neurologic Pharmacists, and I have to plug them because that's my national organization. Um, CPNP.org does have an open to the public resource section where you can click on tools and there's there's a section for substance use disorders. And so it goes through all kinds of information for different substance use disorders. One of our grants is with the Area Health Education Centers, and this runs through HRSA or the Health Resources um, and Services Administration. And they have a program that they have partnered with nonprofit that's called Bridges Out of Poverty. And it's it's a long four to eight hour type presentation, but it really takes professionals and community members to a place of poverty and helps them understand what poverty is like. And if you've never actually been poor or lived in poverty, it's very hard to understand some of the reactions that people who live in poverty have or why their health literacy is not very good or they don't trust healthcare providers. As far as day-to-day life, I think about my community and I think about community partners we have been able to put together and work with. And one of them is our health department. And I mean, Purdue is, is right here in greater Lafayette. And so I think we feel that the Purdue University campus community should be better neighbors. This is what the Boilerworks Project is kind of bringing to bear. It's not just pharmacy students. We have nursing students. Um, IU School of Medicine at West Lafayette students are involved. Um, Biomedical engineering, industrial engineering, political science. And so we're pulling in all kinds of majors to come in because we all look at things from a very different perspective. Great. So for a lot of this really great discussion, I think some of the things that we can really hope to take away from this is the stigma a lot of time it's affecting us potentially is our bias is affecting how we're able to take care of and treat our patients. Um, And talking about one of the first steps is that stigmatizing language and kind of taking a step back as professionals and a lot of great resources and options for us to get involved and to find ways to, to serve these patients in the way that they really deserve to be served. So Carol, I want to thank you so much for being on the Pharmacy Forward podcast and for discussing the stigma related to opioid use disorders. Yes, thank you, Carol, for being on our show today. We really enjoyed the conversation about this important issue, and it was our pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a story you'd like to share about someone who's transforming knowledge into action, send us an email. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. This episode was conceived and developed by Pa Fan, Alex Mills, Megan Brown, Lori Fleming, Josh Fleming, and Stuart Haynes.